In some recent lectures, uh, theologian Grant McCaskill stated that there's a kind of moral corruption in the church today. And contrary to how we might think, uh, this moral corruption is not necessarily committing certain acts against God's will, though that is corruption. Rather, the kind of corruption he's talking about is how we think of ourselves morally as Christians. And McCaskill was focusing on the, the Apostle Paul's statement that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And McCaskill believes that popular evangelicalism has not embraced the fullness of what that means, and so we have an incorrect view of our moral lives. And so we, he wants us to ponder, what does it mean that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me? And so in attempting to explain this, McCaskill sets out to deconstruct the false popular notion about the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. He thinks that sometimes people think the Holy Spirit's role is simply to make a better version of themselves. And so the, the Holy Spirit acts as a kind of Gatorade, a spiritual Gatorade, that we drink it and it gives us a kind of boost to become a better moral me. Or it's like a moral adrenaline shot or a, a kind of a moral force. And so I'm a better dad or I, I go to church or I don't swear anymore. And so what people look at, when people see me, when they look at me, what they see now is a better version of me. And I'm, you know, I'm Randy 2.0 now, or I was Randy iPhone 4S, and now I'm Randy iPhone 10. Now, there is some kind of sense where that is true, but the statement, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, puts a different spin on the whole thing. And so McCaskill's response to all of this is that the Holy Spirit's role is actually to bring to realization or actualization the moral beauty of Jesus Christ into the lives of his people individually and corporately. It's Jesus Christ who now lives in us. It's Jesus Christ whose moral beauty is now put on display in your life. It's Jesus Christ who people see when they see the church and when they see us. It's he who gets the glory and the honor and the worship. It's no longer I who live or no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us individually and corporately. And so what I want to say, uh, look at today is that I think that this is true from our text, that it's, that it's Christ who is living in us, that it's Christ who is working in us. And our text is going to tell us that as servants, we joyfully display and carry on the word and deed ministry of Jesus. Or as an imperative, as servants joyfully display and carry on the word ministry and deed ministry of Jesus. And so we're going to look at three things this morning, uh, interpretation, identity, and inspiration. So that's interpretation, identity, and inspiration. So in terms of interpretation, what does this text mean? What is it saying about the word and deed ministry of Jesus that we are to display in our lives? In terms of identity, what is our role in that? How, how are we as Christians to reveal Christ? And lastly, inspiration motivating us? How does this text motivate us and encourage us to joyfully display and carry on the word and deed ministry of Jesus? So let's first look at interpretation. Well, what's going on in this text that we've just read from Acts? Um, what's the meaning of it? Well, how do we interpret it? Well, as soon as we begin to ask those questions, if you're familiar with that text, we, we already have a problem with it. 
Because this, pa- this passage in Acts chapter 6 is commonly understood as giving a structure and a model for part of church government. We interpret this text as saying that we elect deacons and they do min- mercy ministry. This, the story is that there's widows that are being overlooked and they choose seven men to oversee this ministry so that is, um, the problem is solved. But there's some challenges with this. I mean, historically and in our day, Christians want to know what the Bible says about certain subjects and certain church matters like church government. I mean, at least some people do. And so that's fine. But at one of the places that people often look is into the book of Acts because the book of Acts gives us the the first early years of the church, the, the, the first 60 years of the church. And when people read this account or interpreters read this account, they're asking the question, what did the early church do that we should replicate? What norms are there in the early church? Uh, What did they display that we should uh, replicate? And because in this passage, there's deacon-like issues that are talked about, people look at this passage, and what they do is they extract models for church government in it. However, I want to look at this text in a bit of a different way. Um, I think there's something else happening here, and I think it's something more fundamental, something that, that there's a much broader norm taught here by which the church should replicate today. So if this text is teaching us something more than church government, how are we to find that out? What is it saying? How do we interpret it? Well, you might say that we interpret it the same way we interpret, you know, things on a day-to-day basis. So, and that's true. So if, say if you're standing on a sidewalk on Arthur Street in front of a gas station and there's a family there um, getting gas, so there's you know, the, the husband's pumping gas and the wife uh, and the children are in the car. And I asked you what's going on. You might, you might say, well, they're getting gas. Well, yes. But say if you had a friend come up beside you. And this friend points to them. This friend knows who they are and said, you know what those, that family's doing right now? They're actually on a trip to Banff. They're headed out right now and they're going to Banff. Well, suddenly that you realize how to interpret the family's actions. You, you understand the meaning of what's happening, why the family's in the car, why they're there, why they're getting gas. That's kind of normally the way we understand life. We, we, we see these details, but we need the storyline of what's going on to help us interpret that. And that's no different than in the book of Acts. So who are the characters here in this story and what's going on? So look again at this passage. We have the Hebraic Christians and their widows, and then there's the Greek-speaking Jewish Christians. That they're called the Hellenists and, and their widows. So that's all in verse 1. Then there's the 12 apostles and the full number of disciples in the church of Jerusalem. They were, the, the, the full number were summoned there, kind of like a congregational meeting to solve this. And then there's the seven men who were chosen. And, so, and then what is going on? Well, the widows of the Greek-speaking Jewish Christians were being overlooked in what it says, the daily distribution. They complained to the apostles, and the seven men were chosen to solve the problem. Well, is that all the meaning? Is there, is there more? And I'm going to say yes. We need to know the storyline of what's going on here. And one of the things is, is that God graciously provides that. He, he, he gives us the details in Acts 6, but he also provides the overarching storyline. And it's actually found at the beginning of the book of Acts. And as you know, Luke, uh, who is the author of the book of Acts, wrote the gospel of Luke as well. And when you open up Acts chapter 1, Luke gives 
uh, a summary of the larger storyline for both his gospel and for the book of Acts. And just listen to Acts chapter 1, what it says. Luke is writing to Theophilus, and he says this. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. And so Luke tells us that in his gospel account of the life and ministry of Jesus, what he was doing was telling us everything that Jesus began to do and to teach. And the implication for the book of Acts is that Acts is a continuation of all that Jesus began to do and teach. And so it's Acts is about Jesus' word ministry and about his deed ministry. So Jesus is no longer on earth, but he's ministering from his throne at the Father's side, carrying on his ministry. And so that's the macro, that's the, the larger storyline that Acts is talking about. And, and the, the book is actually written to reflect all of that. And so the book of Acts shows us the advancement of the kingdom in the first 60 years of the church. And, and people that, that, that interpret the book, they, they look at it and say, well, there's a couple ways that you could outline the book. You could, you could outline it geographically, that it started in Jerusalem, and then as it progresses, it goes to Rome, or you, in terms of people groups, it starts with Jews, and then it moves to the Gentiles. But another helpful way to outline the whole book of Acts is that it advances in terms of word and deed. And there's actually eight sections in the whole book of Acts that are arranged this way. And it's actually evident in our text. And so when you read Acts, it's like this reoccurring cycle that over and over and over that the, the, the kingdom is advancing in terms of word and deed ministry. And so look at this passage. In Acts chapter 6, verse 1, it says, Now in these days the disciples were increasing in number. They're increasing in number. And so what we have here is the word of God that's going out, the number of disciples in increase is increasing, and we have word ministry. But then there's a problem with the deed ministry. At this moment, it, it, it's almost as if Luke puts the, the pause button, hits the pause button on the narrative of the advancement of the kingdom and said there's this problem with the deed ministry. It's got to be resolved. And so these widows are being overlooked. Um, they find a resolution to the problem. And it, then it's like Luke hits the play button again on the narrative of the advancement of the kingdom. And look at verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And so word ministry continues. And so we have word ministry and deed ministry advancing together. And so Luke is telling us this overarching storyline that we need to interpret the text that we're looking at. And so we need to liken him as uh, a friend on the sidewalk. Uh, as a friend on the sidewalk. He points to the, 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 the micro storyline that the apostles are trying to resolve this neglected widow issue in Jerusalem. And he says, what's actually happening there is that's the advancement of the word and deed ministry of Jesus. The story that we thought was about deacons and mercy ministry is actually about the word and deed ministry of Jesus. Jesus himself is the main character of this story. And we may have missed it. Jesus is this, is, is actually is the storyline, and we may have missed it. And so how are we to see Jesus in this story? Well, he's not like a gnome at the corner of the congregational meeting, nor is he like a police officer directing the traffic of the storyline, uh, making sure it goes in the right place. Um, he is sovereign over all things, no doubt. But Jesus is working in, through his spirit in the lives of the people, 
Just like we talked about at the beginning with Grant McCaskill saying, how, what, is our, what is our interpretation, what is our understanding of how the Spirit works in our lives? And so Christ is working through the lives of his people, their passions, their intellects, their emotions, their consciences, their memories, their plans, their bodies, the fullness of each individual and the collective body of Christ to put on display his own glory in both word and deed. It's Jesus Christ who is being put on display in the lives of his people. And that is what is going on in this text. And that is how we are to read our own lives. And how do we interpret our own lives? Well, we need to remember that this larger storyline that Christ is making himself known in the advancement of his word and deed ministry in us individually and in Fort William Baptist Church is actually happening. And if we are to decorrupt our moral conceptions of ourselves, we need to bring to mind that the good in dis on display in us is not just a better me, but it is Christ. It's the glory of Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, in word and deed. And we display this as we live our lives, carrying out his word and deed ministry. We can turn our attention now to identity. If we're, we are going to display and carry out Jesus' word and deed ministry, it's necessary that we know who we are, what our role is, what our identity is in all of this. And if we're going to seek an answer from this passage, again, we run into some difficulty, and that's because of how it's been interpreted in the past. As I said, the focus of the historical church has been on deacons doing mercy ministry. And the neglected widows are kind of a category under the broader category of mercy ministry. And the seven chosen men are the first deacons to oversee that ministry. And that's how that text is typically understood. However, I think it's teaching something more fundamental about our identity, who we are, how we carry out this word and deed ministry of Christ. And so there's something more basic that we need to replicate. So take a look at this. One reason historically that deacon ministry is highlighted in this passage is not just because of the kind of ministry that it talks about, like doing, helping out widows, but because of the actual words that are used in this text. There's, there's deacon-like words that are used here, and, and that's why uh, people try to interpret this text that way. So just look at two words with me in, in the ESV. Verse 1 talks about the daily distribution. And verse 2 has this word, serve tables. Now, both those words, distribution and serve, they actually have the same root word in the underlying language. You just can't see it in that translation. Both mean to serve. And in some of your translations, you might have uh, a daily service and serve tables. So there you can see it's the same word. The other thing that's going on here is that, that underlying word is where we get our English word deacon from. And so deacon in its non-technical use, when it's not talking about the office of deacon, it actually just means servant. And so people look at, the interpreters look at this and they see deacon-like language and they think in terms of deacon min, deed ministry. But the thing that's often overlooked is that the same word in this passage is used to describe the word ministry that the apostles are doing. Take a look at verse 4. It says, The apostles want to devote themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And that word ministry, it's actually the exact same word as distribution in verse 1. 
So it means something like deacon-like, servant-like, it has that kind of nature to it. And so all of those three words are talking about servant or service. And so what that means for us is that everybody in this passage is doing deacon-like or servant-like work, both the apostles and the people serving, serving the widows. And so this passage is not necessarily talking about electing deacons and overseeing mercy ministry, but the basic thing that this passage's teaching is about our identity. We are servants in deed, and we are servants in word. That's the emphasis here. The emphasis is on our identity. We're either going to serve in this ministry, or serve in this ministry, or serve in that ministry. And as we discussed earlier, the whole book of Acts is about the advancement of the kingdom of God in terms of word and deed ministry, and that's how the book is outlined. But here it's telling you what your role is in that, what your identity is in that. That's what Luke is doing. And it's very evident that what Jesus is doing, you're tied up to what Jesus is doing. What he does, you do. He does word and deed ministry, you do word and deed ministry. But you do it as a servant. Again, going back to the beginning when we're talking about what is God displaying in your life? Why, why are we servants? How do we see ourselves morally as servants? Well, it's because Christ is being put on display in you. He is the greatest servant of all. Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. You should do as just as I have done. Jesus is the, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, offering himself for a guilt offering. Is Jesus, Jesus the servant who said, if anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last the servant of all. Our role is serving one another, looking out for our needs, caring for one another in word and deed ministry. And we display the moral of beauty of Jesus Christ in doing that. And so that, I think, is the basic teaching in terms of our identity, in terms of our roles about what this passage is talking about. But I do want to, I feel compelled um, to talk about a few misunderstandings that people have had from this text when they look at it, when they think about roles in terms of, in terms of roles in ministry. Some have said that the role of deacons is, is strictly mercy ministry and that the proof is in this text. However, all that this text it says in verse 1 is that there was a daily ministry going on at the, at the church in Jerusalem, and widow, ministry to widows was part of that. And even if your version says it was a daily distribution of food, that of food part is actually not in the original text. It just simply says daily ministry. And we don't know if there was other parts of ministry going on there. I mean, you can imagine an organizational chart uh, showing all the people overseeing all kinds of different things in a, in a larger workplace. You know, there's charts with boxes in it, and you have people's names and their roles. Well, when Luke is telling this narrative, all he is doing is circling one of those boxes. We don't know what other things were going on. There could have been the daily ministry to this or the daily ministry to that or the weekly ministry to this or the monthly ministry to that. We, we just don't know it. But because it's not mentioned in the narrative doesn't mean that it didn't exist. This, we have to read it as a narrative. Some people have also said that this was the first election of deacons. And for starters, the, the, the characters here are never, ever actually called deacons. Uh, we've already seen also that the terminology is used for the apostles. 
Furthermore, this passage says that there was already a daily ministry happening, specifically a, a ministry to widows. And the implication is that someone was already doing that ministry. And so does that mean that they were deacons? We don't know. Were there, we, don't, we actually don't know if there's actually elders at, in place at this time at, at the, in the Jerusalem church. We just don't know. Another thing is that people have often read into this passage a kind of upper echelon snobbery of the apostles, like we're too good to wait on tables. And you can probably, you know, you, you know, sometimes people imagine something like, a, you know, a widow's diner and uh, Philip and Stephen are running around with food trays, you know, serving the widows. But the problem is that they, they may have never, ever got near the food. According to some resources, table ministry, as it's called here, may have been just the oversights of the funds for these things. And there may have been more included. I mean, there's over 5,000 people in the church at Jerusalem at this time, so we just don't know what's going on. Another thing is that we have seen in this text that Luke is maintaining that there is a division of labor between, the church, between word ministry and deed ministry. Um, we can see that. At least that is clear. But what I want to underscore at this point um, is that these, this, the ideas of word ministry and deed ministry are not hard and fast categories. They are actually for everyone. And consider just two of the men that were listed here who were looking after the daily uh, ministry to widows, Stephen and Philip. In the very next passage, we have one of the famous speeches in the book of Acts done by, uh, that was done by Stephen. He was preaching to the, the Jews in Jerusalem uh, and the Pharisees, and he was actually martyred there. And that speech was actually... Uh, the catalyst that propelled the early church and propelled the gospel beyond Jerusalem. And so Stephen had a word and deed ministry. Philip is later called the evangelist. When you think of the apostle Paul, wrote some of the greatest passages in the New Testament. But what was he doing on his, on his missionary journeys when he was going around the, um, the Mediterranean? Well, he was collecting money for the poor at the church in Jerusalem. And, of course, Jesus is our premier example of word and deed ministry. So the most that we can say here is that some do mainly deed ministry and some do mainly word ministry. But all of us are called to both. In the fall, the elders and a few others will be taking us through the teaching material called The Course of Your Life by Tony Payne. And the emphasis is mainly going to be on word ministry. There's going to be some deed ministry in terms of the deed of prayer, um, but part of the philosophy behind the whole teaching is that we are all called to word ministry. Even if it is something as small as reading a passage of scripture with someone and praying with them, and so what we need to, when we're looking at this text, we need to remember that while there is the division of labor within the church, um, and, and those offices are commonly seen as elders and deacons. While there's something like that going on, it's not a hard and fast, uh, they're not hard and fast categories, and they're not hard and fast categories for any of us. They're not rigid. So that's my little caveat for how these, you know, some of these things that we have looked, when we're talking about roles, uh, how this text has been, um, I think, misunderstood a little bit. 
But I want to get back to the main thing that we're talking about in identity, and that is the idea that what is being put forward here is that we are all servants. We are all servants. And so what does that mean, really mean for us? Well, I think we all should all get tattoos. Well, at least imagine you get a tattoo. And you can get a tattoo right across your forehead that says, Servant. You tattoo it backwards in reverse. And in this hand, in this palm, you tattoo word. And this, ta- this, this palm, you tattoo deed. And every morning you wake up, you go look in the mirror, and you face yourself, and you say, who am I? What is my identity? I'm a servant. And you hold up this palm, word, and this palm, deed. And you say, Jesus, what do you got for me today? Use me as a vessel. Use me as a servant. Use me as an instrument to display your ministry, both individually and corporately with Fort William Baptist Church. But, of course, we need some motivation to do this, don't we? We need some inspiration to do this. And I think there's some nuggets in this text that will help us, that will motivate us here. The people in this passage are actually exemplars for us. They reveal the deepest joy of their hearts. And their deepest joy in their hearts was when they were found as servants placed in the hand of Jesus to display and carry on his word ministry. And so I want to look back at the text just for a little bit here. And I want to wrestle out some of the hearts of the people involved. And, and that's all of them. Those who were serving widows, the widows themselves, the apostles, all the people that were gathered to resolve the issue, this congregational kind of like thing. And remember, we don't want to forget Jesus. He's the main character here. So what is there here for us? I'm not sure if you missed it or you caught it, but in this passage, the idea of pleasure, pleasure, it's a thread that runs all the way through this. Just look back at the text for a second. The solution to this problem Um, they they resolve the widow issue, actually reveals the pleasures of the people. The apostles come up with this solution, um, uh, choose seven men, and then uh, the widow issue will be resolved. But then in verse 5 it says, and what the apostles said pleased the whole gathering. So what does that mean? (laughs) They made a decision and it pleased the whole gathering. Well, it, our first thought might be that, well, the widows are being taken care of, but that's not merely what it says. You need to look, look again. They were pleased with what the, what the apostles said. Well, what, what did they say? The apostles said two things, that the word ministry was going to be carried on well and that the deed ministry was going to be carried on well. The word ministry was going to be carried on well. It's not right that we should give up the preaching of the word of God to serve tables that pleased the people when they heard it. The deed ministry was going to be carried on well. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of wisdom and of, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. That pleased the people. What they said pleased the whole gathering. The gathering was pleased with all that they said, both with word and deed. They were pleased that the apostles took seriously the deed ministry. They, they wanted men who were wise and spiritual men, good of, of good repute. 
They were pleased that the prayer ministry was going to continue. They were pleased that the preaching was going to continue. And so when you read this word pleased, it's not a mere nicety or kind of, you know, uh, expression of formal courtesy or something like that, but rather it conveyed their hearts. What they were passionate about, what brought them joy. This same word is actually used numerous times in the New Testament to describe the pleasures that God has in his people carrying out his will. It's It's the pleasures of God. The people had the pleasures of God because their, or their hearts were in line with that. And so there's a model for us there. I think as well the problem itself, um, the complaint, reveals uh, the pleasure of the people as well. In, in verse 1 it says, uh, we see that there's a complaint by the Hellenists that rose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in daily distribution. Now, there's some commentaries that say, well, this is the um, Israelites murmuring in the wilderness. I don't know if we just keep reading that into all kinds of different things. But this text really doesn't say that there's anything negative going on here. And, and the complaint could be just a displeasure because that's what happened. We're displeased when the pleasures of God, the things that bring us pleasure, are not being carried out or there's a problem with them. And so... I mean, you can see that in their actions. The people actually wanted to do something about it. They raised this problem, but then they're out there trying to find seven guys. They found them, and they, they're saying, let's get this work done. They were, you know, they were not just people who raised a problem and didn't want to do anything about it. They, they were part of the solution, and it revealed their hearts, that it gave them pleasure. And I think it's very, very important that we notice here that it's not just that they played a part in getting the deed ministry done, but they actually freed up the apostles so that the word ministry could, be get, could get done. And that pleased them. So I think that in all of that, there's something for us to emulate. What brings the apostles joy is also revealed here. Their hearts are revealed. So if you look at the latter parts of verse 2, it says that it's not right that we should give up preaching of the word of God. That word right is actually the same word that's used in verse 5 when it says please. So you could translate this as saying, it's not pleasing that we should give up the preaching of the word of God. And so the the apostles' hearts are revealed here. They, They knew from Jesus' example that the highest form of good that you could do for someone, the greatest care for them, is care for their life and their eternal life through the word of God. And they, you know, they said, yes, deed ministry is important. This text shows that. But there's a priority in the ministry of the word, and it's shown in the scriptures, and the apostles and the peoples knew that, and the people knew this, and it brought them pleasure and satisfaction when it was being done. And of course, we can't leave out the satisfaction and pleasure that these seven men had in carrying on Jesus' deed ministry. We can't leave out the satisfaction and pleasure the widows had in thanking God for his people. We can't leave out that, the fact that the church was already involved in a ministry that was pleasing to God. I mean, what is pure and undefiled religion to visit widows and orphans in their afflictions? And of course, we can't leave out Jesus in his word and deed ministry, carrying that on to the pleasure of the Father. This is, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. The pleasures of the people wrapped up in the pleasures of God doing the ministry of Jesus. So what does that mean for us? I find there's something astonishing in this text, something kind of incredible. 
we have before us the expression of the hearts of the people longing for their deepest satisfaction and joy and carrying out Jesus' deed ministry and word ministry, and it's all happening in something like a congregational meeting. It's like, what? The core of their heart's desires, the root, their root desires, their plans, their longing for ministry is being worked out at something like a congregational meeting. I mean, what is a congregational meeting anyways? What, what did we do at our last congregational meeting? Well, Gary gave a report on, his, on the deed and word ministry in Mexico and what he was doing there, and thoughts are stirred up. How can we, could we help this ministry? Can, uh, can we pray for them? What can we do? Is there anything else? We heard about the deed ministry of prayer. Carol's, Carol talked about prayer week coming up in the fall, and we're asking, how do we prepare our hearts for that? The elders presented, uh, you know, how the word ministry will carry on in the fall, that we're going to do this course of light, your life material, or the John Howard ministry, Word and deed ministry happening there. And so congregational meetings are where we hear of the word and deed ministry and ask, how can we help? What, what is our role in this? How can we be servants? I know that congregational meetings are not necessarily the place where word and deed ministry happen. We know that. But it's the place where these needs come up. It's like, what is the problem in this ministry? What is the problem in this ministry? How do we get this resolved? And we see the longing of the hearts for the satisfaction in carrying out Jesus' word and, deed, word and deed ministry. And it brings us satisfaction. It brought the people satisfaction. It, brought the, it, it revealed the highest pleasures of their heart. And so what is normative in our text? What should we replicate that the early church did here? I mean, if we're going to rid ourselves of the moral corruption and thinking of the Holy Spirit's role in our lives, just, just merely to put us on display... We must embrace the correct view that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Christ is displaying himself in the church. Jesus is continuing his ministry through us, to, through us today. And as servants, we display his ministry, his word and deed ministry, and that will bring us the highest pleasure and joy of our lives. As servants, we joyfully display and carry on the word and deed ministry of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would make this true. Um, thank you for your word to reveal to us what Jesus is doing. Reveal to us that we are caught up in this story of what Jesus is doing. And he has provided encouragement here for us that this will be the deepest pleasures, the deepest joy, the deepest satisfactions of our heart. So we pray that your spirit might work in us, not merely to show people a better me, that we would be on display, but it would show Christ. Help us, Father, to live this out practically in whatever you might have for us. Pray that you, pray that you bless and encourage us in this today. Amen. And when I find myself doubting that such a fantastic hope could ever become a reality, I need only go down to the beach near where I live or look up at a glorious night sky and remind myself that God has already done it once. He's already done it once. Christ's rising to life is central to biblical faith, not merely because it marks out his life as a unique moment in history, but because it, God shows that he is willing and able to breathe new life where there is currently death. 
the resurrection of Jesus is God's tangible pledge within history that he intends to do the same for the whole creation at the end of history. Now listen to this summary, these next two sentences as he summarizes. This current world convinces me of God's ability to recreate the universe. The resurrection of Jesus convinces me of his intention to do just that. In other words, if Jesus was raised, tangible, physical, flesh and blood, it's, it's the same but different. And he didn't raise him in a, in a semi-transparent, floating kind of existence, but tangible. It, it points in the direction that that's what, what, what God is going to do in the future for you and for the world in which we live. So that hope of a physical resurrection can bring joy in the midst of physical suffering. You and I experience uh, pain and weakness and disability and disease and, and that just grows, right? As we get older, the, all of those things creep in and become more and more part of our experience. But the hope of a physical resurrection means that God is going to bring that to an end. And I like how in uh, Revelation 21, when uh, John is giving a vision of, an, of the new heavens and the new earth, that he has to talk about it in terms of the things that aren't going to be there. Because we understand those things. We understand pain. No more suffering. No death. No sorrow. No. And he, his catalog of what heaven is going to be like are, are the very things that creep in on us because sin has entered the world and they're going to be gone. The presence of sin will no longer be a problem. And then lastly, the hope of a physical resurrection brings comfort in the sorrow of death. So when we stand at a graveside or we go out somewhere special to sprinkle our loved one's ashes and we commit those to the earth, we do so in sure and certain hope of a physical resurrection. And that changes everything. That when the Lord descends from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, our loved ones, the dead in Christ, will rise first. That's what kept Job going. Job 19.25, I know that my Redeemer lives and on the earth will stand and that in my flesh, there it is in Job 19.25, in my flesh I will see God. That's the hope that you and I share because of the physical resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Let's pray.
Gracious God and Heavenly Father, uh, what a wonderful thing you have provided for us. Not just the fact that Jesus paid for our sin and, and his resurrection demonstrates your approval and acceptance of his payment so that peace is made with you, but we have so much, Lord, to look forward to. And in the meantime, we want to live lives of hope for you in this world that is so deeply affected by death and decay. So help us to be people of hope as we fix our eyes on Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.